Sadhguru, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. I have, a, I have a large audience. I have a mic. I have no time limit. I have not been on air for three months. I'm completely starved. They've told me to have a conversation with you. And there are some of my guests who come on my program who have been probably missing this. It's wonderful to be with you. It's, I, I have spent some time with you one-on-one -on -one in the past. We've had conversations. Uh, the one thing which I have always found about you is, is that you're, you're so normal. You're so... That's an insult. You're so... You're so <laughs> See, this is a... I do a news program. You're turning this to an entertainment show. <laughs> Can I please proceed? <laughs> you're a wonderful person because I find you uh, straight. I find you direct. I, I don't find you pretentious. Uh, I think you speak so much common sense. You say so many deep things in a very understandable way, uh, which explains your popularity and why so many people have turned up this evening to listen to you. Uh, I was told that the theme of Rotary has been success, service, and spirituality. We'll try and start off by talking about that, and you can take it forward from there. What is more important, success, service, or spirituality? Choose one of them. If you're, uh, whether you do spirituality or service, you want success in that also. You want to be successful. Because the very purpose of any human activity, whether it's something small that you do or something large that you do, Something very simple as hitting a ball, you want to be successful. You don't want to do it in a goofy way. Even if you blow your nose and want to throw the tissue into the bin, you want to be successful. <laughs> I'm saying something so silly. Also, you want to be successful. The biggest human activity means somebody else says, you're doing things <laughs> you're… But what happens when a person is individually successful but at the cost of others? I, I personally often think that people turn to spirituality as uh, an alternative to their own success because they feel guilty about their own success and want to make up for it through <coughs> spirituality. Uh, let's understand what is spiritual process. If you're thinking in terms of spiritual process means uh, you look heavenward, no. This has been cultured, these things we've picked up in the last few centuries, otherwise it did not exist in this country, of looking up, uparwala, doing things. This is a huge problem which I'm trying to change dramatically now. If little things go wrong in your life, you find one little person there, and think it's because of him. If big things go wrong in your life, you find that big guy there and you think it's because of him. This guy is absent. It's time to bring this guy into account. He's been black, you know, unaccounted man for too long. Small things, this guy, big things, that guy. What about this guy? It is time. My endeavor is to move people from religion to responsibility because Spiritual process means this, what you're referring to as spirit is 
that which is the basis of your body. When I say that which is the basis of your body, you were not born like this. You came with such a small one and now you become like this. If you put a banana into this, it becomes the same kind of body. If you put a chapati into this, it becomes the same body. So there is an intelligence and a dimension within us which builds you from within. How… how can any human being know life without addressing this dimension? What is sitting in the hood? Right now, an advertisement about the leather, about the woodwork systems, does it mean paintwork? That you just live with your body and your paintwork and leather without taking… If you want success, it's very normal for human intelligence to question because you see people dying every day, somewhere or the other. Okay, when I fall dead, what? Beyond this body, what? Before this body, what? Is it not a very normal question? But because they messed you up telling you, oh, you came from heaven and you'll go back to heaven and this is what will happen, that's what… About things that they don't have a clue, everybody's talking. with authority. Because of this, now it looks like somebody has to guide you to a spiritual process. If you bring up your children without a single advice, if you're capable of that, it's very difficult, believe me <laughs> You know, when… when my daughter was just three and a half months old, she was traveling with me. One hand on her and my right leg is always full down and I drove across the country and she grew up like this with me till she's five till she went to school. Every day we are in a different home, staying with all kinds of people, everybody wants to teach her something. I said, one rule is nobody will teach her anything. No ABC, no one, two, three, no Mary had a little lamb, because I don't care whether Mary had a lamb or not <laughs> So you won't believe nobody thought her anything. By the time she's eighteen months, she fluently speaks three languages because she's all ears, because nobody talks to her <laughs> She just grasps everything around her because nobody is teaching her anything. And she grew up like this and when she was twelve, thirteen years of age, one day she came up to me. She just come ba came back from school disturbed about something there and uh, she said, you're teaching everybody so many things, you're not telling me anything. I said, well, I don't do anything unsolicited. Here you come now, let's see. Hmm. So this is all you need to know. So what I want to know is how human you are. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is how you human I have human finished I my question. <laughs> uh, no. I, I want to know, I want to know how human you are, Sadhguru. Because, and the reason I'm asking you this is because <laughs> very often we want to be guided by people who we feel have transcended the insecurities of humanity. So I want to know whether you're scared of something. <laughs> I want to know whether you experience fear, and I would also like to know whether you have attachments. Can we start with the first? Let me finish this. <laughs> this is not news hour, okay? When I'm… when I'm telling you an answer, you can't ask me another question <laughs> I'll get back. <laughs> I'll get back. And not… we're not yet in Republic either <laughs> You're making a cardinal mistake, Sadhguru. In 2014, I met a young man called Rahul Gandhi. Oh. 
I don't know why anyone's laughing again. <laughs> he too interrupted me like you did. I got back later. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> but you'll have to answer my question later. Please go ahead. Uh, you, ha you have a different package here <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I, I will come to that, I'm very much going towards that. So the girl comes to me and says this, then I say, see this is all you have to know. Never look up to anybody. She looks at me, what about you kind of thing. I said, not even me, never look up to anybody, never look down on anybody, this is all the teaching. If you don't look up to anything, if you don't look down on anything, you will see everything just the way it is. If you see everything just the way it is, you will navigate your life effortlessly. That's all it takes. Now, how human am I? You just now use the word human and almost everybody, everywhere I go, they use the word human, always referring to the limitations of being human never talking about the immensity of being human. Oh, I'm only human, but why are you not saying I'm human? You're on top, you're the top species on the planet. You're supposed to be in the top of the pile of all the species. Why people are saying I'm only human is because they're suffering themselves like no other creature. Not an ant or an elephant suffers themselves as human beings do. The stomach is full, they are fine. For a human being, stomach empty, only one problem, stomach full, one hundred problems. <laughs> the reason is this is an evolutionary thing <laughs> It's an evolutionary thing that what you call as your cerebral flower, this brain, is new to you, you know, in the evolutionary scale of things, it is a new happening, this intellect and most people have not figured how to handle it. They're not suffering the world, they're suffering their own thought and emotion most of the time. Why is it your education systems did not even teach you how to handle your thought, how to handle your emotion? Now the moment you say you're human or not, first thing, the next question somebody will ask is, can I pull a gold chain from thin air, can I do something else or can I pull out a rabbit from the vessel or can I pull a pigeon out of my pocket? If I pull a pigeon out of pocket, my pocket, what will you have? You will have a bird, I'll have a shitty pocket <laughs> This is not going to change anybody's lives. I will show you a miracle. I will show you people who have… who are full-on activity, not people who are sitting in some cave, full-on activity, all right? Twenty hours a day, seven days of the week, we are all on. I'll show you people for five, ten, fifteen years, they've not had a moment of anger, agitation, irritation, nothing. They live joyfully, blissfully. This is the miracle the world wants. This is the miracle the humanity needs. If this happens to you, you will not refer to human as a limitation, you will talk about human as a huge possibility. My question… my question was about you, whether you need to transcend a few things. I… I personally think it's all right. It's… Go, it's good to feel fear, it's good to have insecurities, it's good to be attached. 
But what we are constantly told is to be guilty about fear, to be worried about expressing or being open that's about… A, that's multiplying the problem. Now you have fear and now you have See, guilt. Sadhguru, I <laughs> listen to oh. you. I still watch news hour, so what can I do? <laughs> this doesn't usually happen <laughs> But Rotary Club, well, okay, so, you made me forget my question. My, my, my point was that we are constantly told to be, to, to be embarrassed about our insecurities, right? We are told not to have attachments. We are constantly told that in our lives and in our own Hindu philosophies and other philosophies to lose attachments. I want to know why this is necessary, which is why I asked you, because you were described as an enlightened soul, which I know you are. I asked you whether an no, enlightened, you, you enlightened, enli enlightened soul like you <laughs> feels insecurity, experiences attachment. See. Why this has come up is because people have a selective sense of involvement. This is what I said when I said, do not look up to anything, look, do not look down on anything. This is because if you look up to any something, you will exaggerate. If you look down on something, you will exaggerate the negative. The moment you look up to something, you will get attached to it. The moment you look down on something, you will get dejected by it in some way, disgust will come. So these… these emotions of fear, insecurity, attachment, detachment, everything is a consequence. Shall we handle the source or shall we handle the consequence? People are always busy handling the consequence, they're telling you, trim your fear, can you fear trim it? No way is it going to work. Now you're flipping on the other side and saying, we need not be ashamed of it, let's have it. Is it a pleasant experience, I'm asking? Is fear, insecurity, guilt, whatever, is it a pleasant experience? If it's a pleasant experience, keep it, it's up to you. If it's an unpleasant experience, is it a choice? I'm asking you just this much. In the world around us, what happens? It's a different issue. World will never happen hundred percent the way you want it. Even if you're just two people in the family, Still it doesn't happen hundred percent the way you want it. If it's fifty-one percent your way, you are the boss, okay <laughs> More than that won't happen. But what happens within you must happen your way, isn't it? If what happens within you happened your way, would you keep this blissful or would you keep this fearful or miserable or whatever? You wouldn't do that to yourself, isn't it? At least for yourself, you want the highest level of pleasantness. Though what you want for your neighbor may be debatable, but what you want for yourself is very clear, isn't it? So it's okay to have fear, it's okay to be insecure? No, I didn't say it's, that. It's okay to be attached and… and I'm and, asking no, no, and, and you, if you about, had a choice… And what about… what about ego, Sadhguru? Fear, insecurity, attachment and ego, these are the four things, Sadhguru, that we are told to get rid of. Over a period of time, we are told that as you grow older, and you learn more in life, you must learn to give Who away all guru? four. Pardon me? Who is your guru? Who's? <laughs> why should… why should I reveal? No, but this is a fact, this is what we are told. Let is it… is it necessarily the truth? Let's go one at a time, the ego. Everybody is talking about this. Right now, 
in a, any human being for that matter, if they do something wonderful, they'll say, I did it. If they do something nasty, it was my ego. So, Mr. Ego is a fall guy. Whenever you turn nasty, he's always there. But when you do good things, it's of course you, isn't it? I'm saying, let's become straight with life that sometimes you're wonderful, sometimes you're nasty, sometimes you're joyful, sometimes you're miserable, this is your reality right now. You don't need a fall guy. This much sincerity we must bring into our lives that what happens from within me is me and nobody else but me. If you come to this much, now if you see you're fearful or you're miserable or you're frustrated or you're depressed, if you see it's all because of me, would you not want to change it? Would you not want to change it? One hundred percent. Now, I want to change it, how? Now you are asking for tools. That is why I am here just giving you tools for transformation. Because tools are important in human life. As human beings, we are dominating the planet only because of our ability to use tools. Otherwise, probably a colony of ants or a pa pack of dogs could dominate human species. But we can use tools. The power of tools is such. Right now, if I ask you to unscrew a little screw in this furniture, you may lose all your nails, it'll not come out. You may lose some of your teeth, it'll not come out. If I give you a little screwdriver, it'll come out. So similarly, to handle the inner dimensions, there are tools. These tools, this is the USP of this country, which is all messed up right now, that people have not presented it properly. If I give you tools for transformation, the only thing is to learn to use the tools, that's all. You don't have to believe any philosophy, you don't have to adhere to any ideology, you don't have to look heavenward because you don't know in which direction it is. People are looking up. After all, you're sitting on a round planet and the damn thing is spinning all the time. If you look up, you're obvious inevitably looking up in the wrong direction. <laughs> Sadhguru, two simple questions. One is, when you experienced what you said sitting on a rock and you experienced enlightenment, we spoke about it once, you described it to me. Please don't think it's an absurd question. Why did it happen to you and doesn't it happen to others? A. What did you experience? And what do others have to go through to go through that experience? Are you blessed in a different way? <laughs> Why did nobody else go through that experience? Everyone seeks it. Well, everyone is not seeking it, nor was I seeking it. I was not seeking it. Tell me about it. Uh, I must give you some background. When I was just four, four and a half years of age, I suddenly realized that I don't know anything. I don't know anything means I don't know anything at all. To such an extent, if somebody gives me a glass of water, I would be simply staring at the water for hours on end. I know what is water in terms of how I can use it, but I don't know what it is. Even today we don't know what it is. With all this scientific exploration, we still do not know what a single atom is. We know how to break it, we know how to use it, we know how to fuse it, but we don't know what it is. So, if I saw a leaf, I'm just staring at, staring at it for five, six hours. I sit up in my bed and I'm staring at the darkness for the entire night. My dear father, being a physician, thinks that I need psychiatric evaluation. 
you also beginning to think <laughs> So he is worried this boy is simply staring at something all the time. My problem is, I looked at this and I don't know what this is, I am not able to shift my attention to another one. What is this, what is that, what is that, what is that? By the time I am five, I am a billion questions and nobody seems to know anything. Initially, they were all comfortable, I thought, they all know, only I don't know. Then slowly I realized, they have made a deal with their ignorance. Ignorance, they have made a deal with their ignorance. They have all decided, this is how it is, we don't know, you don't know, it's okay, we'll all pretend everything is fine. I couldn't make a deal with my ignorance. So I just sat there staring at everything. In this condition, they sent me to school <laughs> My mother said, you must pay attention to the teacher. I went and paid attention to the teacher. <laughs> the kind of attention the teacher would have never received in their life. <laughs> Initially, I heard their words and sort of understood what they were trying to say. But after a while, I realized, they are only making sounds. This will be very useful. They are only making sounds. I am making up the meaning in my head. When I realized, they are just… you know, hour after hour, teacher after teacher, they come and make sounds, make sounds and make sounds. I am making up meanings and meanings and meanings. Then I realized this and I stopped making meanings. I just paid attention to the sounds. After some time, it became so amusing, a big smile spread on my face but they were not amused <laughs> Things continued like this. About eight, nine years ago, the school where I studied over forty-five or fifty years ago, they came to invite me for their hundred and twenty-fifth anniversary. I said, see, why me? Because uh, I was not just a bad student, I was not even a student. I only went there when it was a must. They said, no, no, our school has produced union ministers, our school has produced test cricketing stars, film stars, you're the only mystic, you have to come <laughs> So I went. So I go up there, uh, go there and stand up in the quadrangle to speak and I look around, same oppressive buildings. Then I look like this, this classroom suddenly it reminds me I'm twelve years of age. And those days I wouldn't speak, speak for many days at a time because when you don't know anything, what to say? So one afternoon the teacher is trying to get a response from me, he's asked a question and he's asked… I'm waiting for a response. I simply look at him, I say nothing, he can't make out anything of me. And after some time, I don't even see him, it's like that for me. I know his past, present and future, but I don't hear what he's saying. After thirty-five, forty minutes of this effort, he got so mad with me, he came and held me by the shoulder, shook me violently like this and said, you must either be the divine or the devil, I think you're the later. I was not insulted by this or abused by this. My problem was, what is this, what is that, what is that, what is that? One certainty was there, this is me. Suddenly this guy confused me about this also. I looked, is this divine, is this devil, what the hell is this? I thought this is me, this was okay till then. <laughs> Suddenly I didn't know what is this. So I tried to stare at myself, it didn't work, so I started closing my eyes. What was minutes then went into hours, went into days and 
that is my spirituality. And then? And then, then what happened? I, by the time I'm fifteen, I'm almost ready to leave home for an armed struggle. These are the days of uh, Charu Majumdar and Somalu and uh, I want to leave because any… anything that I perceive as injustice, my… my stomach burns, so I want to rush a bunch of boys, all of us want to leave and join armed struggle. Then when I got very close to them, then I saw they were unfortunately not what they were talking. So I kind of stepped back, then I became a super skeptic. I grew up in Dostoevsky, Camus, Kafka, this kind of stuff, skeptical about everything. But one thing was eating me, that is this billions of questions and they started growing. The number of questions went on growing as my intellect grew. No answer. Then the only answer I found was to travel. So initially I cycled across South India, then I motorcycled across India, I crisscrossed India many times all over the place. Then when I was nineteen plus, I just, you know, I've been riding since I was eleven without a license. But uh, by eighteen, the day I became eighteen, I went and got my license within a week's time. So suddenly I thought I'm super empowered, I can go where I want. Then I came to Nepalese border <clears throat> and then they stopped me and they asked for a passport. I didn't know what it is, you won't believe I was nearly twenty, nineteen at least. I did not know what is a passport, I did not… I thought my license will get me everywhere <laughs> Then that was a kind of a realization, I thought, okay, oh, I can't cross these lines. So I went back determined to get myself a passport and some money so that I'll travel forever because the only thing that cooled me down from these questions was I was moving. I rode across the country alone by myself simply, not going anywhere in particular. I saw India like very few people would have seen India in a completely different way. I just walked into villages, just knocked on a door and said, I'm hungry and they fed me without asking my name, where I come from. Sometimes I was tired so I slept in their homes, next day morning I left without asking their name, who they are. But that imagery, those people, those emotions, that stuff, I think it hugely enriched my life on the terrain. I can run that terrain that I've seen thousands of kilometers of terrain is like a video in my mind. I can just run it in my mind and just enjoy India just like that. Not some great monuments or something, just a tree, an outcrop of rock, or this or that, like that. This is how I remember everything because I never think in words. Even today I think only in pictures and images, not in words. I think that's what keeps me very, very entertained by everything that I do <laughs> So, then I thought I should make some money and got into business became far more successful than people would expect in a short period of time. And everybody started clapping, clapping their hands, you're doing great and wonderful. But I was doing all this to get away from everything. But as success came, you know, you… I tried to put one finger, then all the five fingers went, then all the ten fingers went, it'll go right up till here. I think those highly successful business days, probably was the most wasted days of my life because there was no exploration. I did variety of things. I started half a dozen small businesses which all started growing, which people would think is success. But I, when I look back and see, 
those six years of my life are probably the least creative part of my life. Why… why did you do it? Uh, I thought I'll make money and write away. Why did you want to make money? To write. To write? Yeah, to fill the gas <laughs> To put gas in the tank all the time <laughs> because right from the age of twelve, thirteen, I've been riding cycles across South India. After that I've been on the motorcycle, I don't know how to… you need gas. So I thought I need money to really go away. So it cut me up and then one afternoon, I'm… you know, it's in Mysore city. How many of you are familiar with Mysore city? Okay. There's a little hill called Chamundi hill. There is a tradition in Mysore, at least there was at that time for the youth. If we fall out, we have to go up Chamundi Hill. <laughs> if you have nothing to do, we went up Chamundi Hill <laughs> So that afternoon, between two business meetings, I just had about an hour and a half. Without even thinking, I just rode up Chamundi Hill. I have camped there, I have trekked this hill right from my childhood, I know this too well. So I parked my motorcycle, climb up and sit on that now famous rock. But I'm telling you, the rock is not special. <laughs> It's like the Bodhi tree, the tree became more famous than the Buddha <laughs> So, uh, I just went and sat there, my eyes were still open. And suddenly I did not know which is me and which is not me. Till that moment, it was always very clear, this is me, that is somebody else. I have no issue with that somebody, but this is me and that somebody else. Suddenly I did not know which is me and which is not me. What was me was just everywhere. The very rock upon which I was sitting, the air that I was breathing, the atmosphere around me, everything had become me. I thought this madness lasted for about ten, fifteen minutes, but when I came back to my normal state, it was about four and a half hours. My eyes were still open. For the very first time in my adult life, tears, me and tears were impossible. I lived like this, but Tears to a point, my shirt is all wet and every cell in my body is bursting with ecstasy. When I shook my skeptical head and asked, what is happening to me? The only thing that my mind could tell me was, maybe you're going off your rocker. Then when I shared with my closest friend, something is happening to me, it's too fantastic. That, ah, come on, what did you drink? What did you pop? Uh, I saw there was nobody around me, nor anything in my mind to tell me what's happening to me. All I knew was I've hit something which is a gold mine and I don't want to miss it for a moment. And I just discovered this, if I just sit here without messing with my thought process and my emotion, my entire system will burst out in ecstasy. And a few days later, I made a plan because I thought I'm the first one to discover this at that time, because I had no spiritual… I'm not acquainted with spiritual traditions, I've never read a scripture in my life, till today I've never prayed to anybody or anything, nor have I attended any spiritual discourses or anything. So I thought this is the first time, I know. And I made a plan, in two and a half to three years' time, I'm going to make the entire world ecstatic. See, thirty-five years <laughs> Well, we have touched one hundred and fifty to two hundred million people, but that is not my idea of the world. 
slowly, you know, these days I become wise. Now I realize so many people have so seriously invested in their misery, they are not going to withdraw their investment so easily. It needs so much coaxing and cajoling and life knocking them on their head. So many things need to happen to them or you have to threaten them with death. <laughs> Otherwise, they will not withdraw their investments even though it is causing enormous pain and suffering to them. They are not willing to withdraw their investments in misery. So slowly we are working, I know I will die a failure, but a blissful failure. I've made a mistake, Sadhguru. <laughs> My mistake is that I'm constructing a studio for our channel Republic. I constructed it in Lower Parel. Can you tell me the way to Chamundi Hill, please? <laughs> I want to build my studios in Chamundi Hill. I'll also experience ecstasy every moment. I don't know about my guests. I can make it happen in wherever you are <laughs> <laughs> This is fascinating, sir. Life changed after that. Uh, the, the most important thing is, the perception of who I am changed. I'm not talking the idea of who I am, the perception of who I am. I went up the hill as a smart young man, very cocky and confident about everything. I came down as real nothing. Just nothing means nothing was left in me. I… I remember that moment. I came down around 7.45, 8, it happens to be a Saturday evening, we are in a construction industry and Saturday evening is the time when we give out labor to everybody. In front of our office there are some five hundred people waiting and my partner, I come and park my motorcycle and I still got the engine revving and I look in and my partner looks out and he can't believe on a Saturday evening I'm not there, he just looks at me like this. I just looked at this entire scene. This is something we built. Built means like every day from morning five to eleven in the night, non-stop, I was on sites building this company. I just looked at the expression on my partner's face, he just looked quizzically, what are you up to, why are you not here, kind of look on his face. And I looked at all these people who were waiting in lines for money, the cashiers were giving out money. I engaged the gear and I left, that was my end of my business. Then I loitered around the town because I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to face my mother because suddenly she was no more my mother. Somewhere I was little struggling with that. I knew when I went, went home, I wouldn't look at her as I would have looked… as I have looked at her for the last twenty-five years. I didn't go there till eleven-thirty in the night. I wanted her to go to bed, but our mothers are such, she's still waiting. I put my head down and went and said, I'm not hungry and I went and locked in my… myself in the room. Because though something so fantastic was happening, I was still struggling between the two worlds. Everything that I considered as myself till that moment was gone. And suddenly I look at people, it's indescribable <laughs> Because so many things that you're involved in, it's like you almost died. I think this is how it must feel when you're dead. So many things you think, this is it, this is it, this is it, but tomorrow morning, poop, the man disappears. Nothing. Doesn't matter you cry, you yell, he doesn't respond, he's completely gone. Just like that, I was completely gone. 
the person that I was, was just gone. Sadhguru, you meet a lot of interesting people. Who is the most self-aware or the most enlightened human being you've met? A lot of people around me. Names and why? Oh, usually they are not famous names. The simple people <laughs> Avoiding my question. No, I'm not. There must be some See, people we know. The most fantastic human beings on the planet are usually not well known. Because getting known in the world is a different business. Being wonderful within you is a different business. I'm doing everything possible to marry these two. What do you think about the state of the nation? Uh, see, we must understand that as ancient we are as a nation, the idea of a modern nation has not really sunk into everybody's minds. I believe the way you have named your new venture, uh, in some way you want the idea to sink into people's minds because a nation is not some God-given thing. It is something that exists in people's minds and hearts. It's just an idea that we enshrine in pursuit of common well-being. But it goes somewhere altogether. Over a period of time, people start thinking it is the thing. That's not how it is, but it is the thing, it's an important aspect. Because nation is the largest segment of humanity that you can address right now. If you could address the entire humanity, it would be fantastic. But that's not possible, that's not realistic right now. That may be the ideal, but that's not realistic. So right now, nation is the largest segment of humanity you can address. India as a nation is a world by itself. So though we have a history of what we call as Bharat or Hindustan, which goes back to ten, twelve thousand years of history, both… though within this geography we had at certain times over two hundred political entities, still we were considered a nation, both by people within and those outside, also considered this nation, though there were different kings ruling all over the place. Why this happened is a unique thing. Most nations or all nations are made on the same… sameness of something. Sameness of language, sameness of race, sameness of religion, some sameness is important. We have defied that completely. We have never tried to be same in any sense. If you drive fifty kilometers anywhere in the country, every fifty kilometers you meet different kind of people. They look different, talk different, dress different, eat different, everything is different about them. But still we have been a nation for over ten thousand years without maintaining the sameness. I think it's an extremely unique and fantastic happening which we must culture, nurture and preserve. What is it that kept us together? Why people outside called us a nation though we were ruled by different entities all the time? Fundamental thing which made us one nation is that every nation in the world believed in something. We as a nation never believed in anything. We have always been a nation of seekers, seekers of truth, seekers of liberation. Today's… Uh, <laughs> 
In today's generation, this might have gone out of uh, the present lingo, but it's coming back in some other way. In previous generation, if you spoke, in a day, my grandmother wouldn't end a conversation without at least once uttering the word mukti or moksha. It was like day-to-day -day thing. It's not like at the end of your life you're thinking mukti or when you go to your spiritual discourse you're thinking mukti, no. In day-to-day -day life, in conversations, every day mukti mukti, maybe that is why today people are shouting azadi azadi <laughs> Maybe it's coming back in another way <laughs> but… You've, you've heard of the ongoing discussion on freedom of expression and I personally felt pretty outraged last year when a group of people started to make it fashionable to speak against the nation. We saw the limits of the debate on freedom of expression last year. Sadhguru, my question to you is in the context of what is happening today. We've seen a little bit of that happen once again on the north campus of Delhi University. In, in your view, why is it becoming fashionable for some people to run down the nation and then use that as an example of the freedom of expression? I find that hypocrisy. What do you think? Everybody is very freely quoting the constitution. It is the constitution of India which gives you the freedom <laughs> of speech. You must stress on the word India. <laughs> it is the constitution of India. It is not some divine constitution which has given you this freedom. It is the constitution of India which has given you this freedom. The moment you question that, then you have questioned the fundamentals of the making of a nation. See, religions have their own constitution. The only problem with this constitution is it's not amendable. A nation has a constitution, but if all of us don't like it, we could amend it. It's not a given by somebody, we made it, we agreed to it, it's an agreement. Our constitution is an agreement among us. So when the freedom of speech was given, they put eight restrictions. The Indian constitution puts eight restrictions on human… on freedom of speech. One fundamental restriction is, it should not question the sovereignty of the nation. The moment you question it, you're questioning the existence of the nation, where does the constitution give you freedom? It doesn't make sense. So, these things are coming from a certain background. I, I'm telling you, I went through this when I was thirteen, fourteen. By the time I was fifteen, I was ready to pick up the gun. Because we were… they have fiery talks every day, you know. Very insightful, I mean, not insightful, very inciting kind of talks. So fired up that you want to do something. And when you're young, you always think, you know, violence is the solution. Those people who are talking about peace, they don't believe in it, they believe in violence. The moment you talk about breaking up something, there is going to be violence, whether you like it or you don't like it. If you… you don't have to go that back far in history, if you just go back to 1948, when the country was broken, because we didn't have the courage to fix it, we broke it, we're still bleeding, half a million people died, endless amount of suffering people went through and still there are colonies both here in this country and that country which are still not sorted out. Yes? Still, even properties are not settled 
70 years. How long do you think is human lifespan? Are we going to live for thousand years that we're going to settle our problems over seventy, hundred years? Still, both the nations are bleeding. When I say bleeding, don't think only of the human blood. What is the… what is the kind of investment we are making in our armed forces? Only because we broke this country, isn't it? Otherwise, everything could have been focused on the well-being of the people. Just to… I mean, just… I'm not commenting on this. Just recently when I… you know, when I was just reading the newspapers, I saw twenty-eight billion dollars for a missile defense system from Russia, we're buying. We are buying much more. But I'm just saying, twenty-eight billion dollars, when I think about it, we could educate every child in the country, we could nourish every child in the country, we could do so much work. We could make sure people in this country live well, but we cannot do that right now simply because we broke the nation. So if you talk about breaking it further, this will go on for centuries because breaking will never be clean breaking, it'll not happen like that. When you break, somebody will be this side, somebody will be that side, so much human suffering, resentment, hatred, which you cannot solve. This line that was drawn just sixty, seventy years ago, can you believe it is only sixty years, the level of hatred we have for each other? You can't cure this, isn't it? So, breaking is never a solution, it's better to sort it out. Whichever way it comes, better to sort it out. For that we have a framework which is called the constitution. Constitution, we must… I'm repeating this, is not a divine document. It is an agreement between you and me, so that in every step that we take, we don't collide with each other. Yeah. This is the law that we will follow. That's all. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm so glad that you have made your position so abundantly clear on this subject because I don't know why people are conflicted, Sadhguru. Some people say they are conflicted even over issues such as whether you need to stand up for the national anthem. We had the no, That's because in the theaters, in one hand they have popcorn, in the other half they have Coca-Cola. <laughs> they cannot stand up, you must consider these things. No, but there was that absurd debate last year and I know many people here would know about it. It became fashionable last year to say, I assert my right to rebel and my rebellion is that I will not stand up for the national anthem. And I'm saying this openly, Sadhguru, I'm a part of the media too, that I found the pseudo-liberal media in this country advocating that as an example of the freedom of expression. And forgive me my directness on this, I never felt people in my fraternity were more wrong. Uh, see, what we need to understand is we're picking up bits and pieces from developed nations and trying to implant it into our country. Well said, well said. When… Well said. When fifty percent of the population has not even eaten properly, you can't be debating nuances of democracy. It's just stupid. You go to United States of America, in every sports event, okay, in a baseball match, National anthem is played, everybody will stand up like this, okay, with their hand on their heart. Well, you're discussing some kind of French revolution, all right, but you don't have river Sion flowing, nor do you have Paris around you. You have slums around you, you have a stinking Yamuna flowing, you shouldn't be talking the same language. 
and half the people have not eaten properly. Just take a walk, just take a walk in one of the villages, you will see sixty percent of the population, their skeletal system has not grown to full size. We are busy producing underdeveloped human beings. Substandard human beings you're producing and you're talking about a great nation and fanciful ideas. This is not the time. When everybody is well-fed, when things are taken care of, then maybe you can talk about certain things. This is not the time. I don't agree with you, Sadhguru. I don't think great nations are built out of economic well-being. But my… that's my simple point of polite uh, disagreement uh, with you. I'm let not… Me, I'm not me. saying economic well-being. Eating what I need to eat to sustain this body is not economic well-being. It is a fundamental right, whether there is a nation or no nation. Not just for a human being, not just for a human being, for every worm, insect, animal, bird, the basic sustenance necessary for their survival is the right of the creature, isn't it? So this is not about economic well-being, this is a must for every life. Every worm, insect, bird, animal, tree must get the fundamental nourishment. Of course we are included as one of the creatures. No, I… I meant it in your linking the talk of a great nation to whether we have everything that we need. I think we still can be even if we don't. Sadhguru, with again polite disagreement with you, the… you know, what happened in Bangladesh after the famine also saw the rise of the greatest form of nationalism in Bangladesh. So, history teaches us different lessons at different points of time. I don't want to argue with you on this. We'll go aside and have an argument after this. <laughs> my… 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 Uh, my point to you which you… which… which provokes me to take this discussion further, Sadhguru, why have… have we become… Like, have we insulated ourselves? The better we do, the more we want to cut ourselves off from our own country and our surroundings. And I agree with your previous point. In 1997, Sadhguru, I was in NDTV, there was a story which came out, a reporter called Sampat Mahapatra called me. And he said that, uh, there is a story I want to go and report. And we needed approval from the headquarters to send the reporter down there. Sampath went there and he said, there's a village where people are dying. We sent him there. When he went there, he said that there was an entire village which, uh, which was dying. And the reason for that was horrifying. There was complete starvation in that village. There was a drought, there was no health facilities, there was not a grain of rice. So the people of this area, which is the KBK, Kalahandi, Bolangir, Koraput belt in Orissa, started taking the seeds of mangoes, putting it into muddy water and making a soup of it. That, because it was so hot, started becoming rotten. And so it was a rotten mango gruel that was prepared. And because they were so hungry and no mother can see her child starve, they were poisoning themselves to death because they were so hungry they had to eat something. In my life, I remember at that time as a reporter, I stood outside gate number one of parliament, I was so angry and I confronted the then food minister who said to me that is bade desh mein beasties log mar jate hai, baat ka batangar bana dete And I was shocked and horrified, Sadhguru. Till this date, I feel and people say to me, why do you scream so much? I say, because in this country, you don't yell, you don't scream, nobody gives a damn. I still do believe that in this country, 
we believe in that chalta hai attitude because we think everything's okay with us why should we care about the rest of the world we are growing but the chasm in our country is also growing between the rich and the poor between the haves and the have nots between those who have everything and those who don't have any shelter and yet we feel happy enough to cut ourselves off from it is it true that we spend a large amount of our time cutting ourselves off from our own country is this not one of the greatest problems of india today that we the privileged sections of india have cut ourselves off from the rest of india and is there a solution for it see the question is not about uh, the disconnect between the well to do and the not so well to do or the improvised regions of our nation we are we have not invested enough in the fundamental nature of our humanity we become many things other than being human if you sat here as just a human being it would be very natural for you that your heart beats for everything around you but now you become so many things starting from gender language culture religion race ethnicity in many ways we have identified ourselves because of these identities these all these identities give you a certain sense that you can undermine your humanity you cannot undermine your humanity if you did not have these identities or if you did not give it too much priority you all of us have those identities at a certain level cultural identities are there language identities are there but they are not fundamental to us our fundamental nature is that we are life if you sat here as life you would reverberate with every life nobody had to tell you you would be that way but that has not happened that is because we are a moral country we've never had codes of morality in this nation we have always managed populations because in every generation they were enlightened beings hundreds of them and so we manage human consciousness in a certain way by making people conscious we manage situations in a beautiful way wherever those people did not come or not enough were there there anarchy happened chaos happened because we have never had a set of morality because morality makes you act but doesn't transform you for example i'm i'm sorry i'm not commenting on the theme of the club for example the word service I'm leaving the theme of this see it's like this if you let's say there is a child starved out on the street if you pick up the child and feed this child and take care of this child you think it is service but if you pick up your own child and do that you don't think it is service what is the difference i'm asking for one your heart is beating for the other it is not so the barrenness of heart is the basis of all this we are always trying to do good you don't have to do go any good you just have to become a full fledged human being a full fledged human being means a natural conscious response to everything and what best you could do you could do and that's all a man can do that you are at your best always to everybody and everything or you doing the greatest maybe not but i am doing my best 
If every human being do, does their best in every sphere of life, with every life that they come in touch with, something will happen. But above all, this is a more large-scale problem that there is lack of planning, lot of, lack of policy, lack of corrections and irresponsible uh, population explosion. In 1947, we were only 33 crores. Today we are 120 crores or 25 crores. Four times over in 70 years is irresponsible reproduction. This is not because we have over-reproduced, we must understand this. In 1947, uh, the average life expectancy of an Indian was only twenty-eight years. Today we are reaching somewhere sixty-three, sixty-four, which is a great achievement. We should further push it. But on an average, a woman used to go into pregnancy when she was fourteen, fifteen or sixteen. Today we've pushed it to something like nineteen, twenty is the average when they're getting pregnant. So by the time she's sixty-five or seventy, there are four generations behind her or three generations behind her and one or two generations ahead of her. That means right now in many families there are five generations living. This is not good. This is very brutal what I'm saying, I know. But at any time, there is space only for three generations – your parents, yourself and your children. There can't be five generations living. That's what is happening right now in this country and in many other pl places, especially in this country. Five generations are living, so there is no space. Once there is such a load, people will keep their humanity in the attic and go about brutally. That child who comes and knocks on your traffic space, I would cry at one time. Now I'm trying to look down because every time I don't have money to pull out, most of the time I don't have, I have to ask the driver who's driving, please give me some money <laughs> So I try to look down. So you're trying to put down your humanity for some time, but it would be natural for me to pull out whatever I have and give it to him. But now you can't do it because it's everywhere. It's… it's too much of a problem for you to address individually. Wherever you can do, whatever you can do, you do, but you're not able to address everything slowly you try to insulate your humanity. This is what is happening. It is not that people have become brutal, it's not that people have become inhuman, because the problem is so pervasive, you're not able to address it. Has hate increased after Trump? Hmm? Has hate increased after Trump? <laughs> uh, it is not increased. It is just that it's little emboldened. It's not increased. I spent substantial time in United States, in and out. It was always there. Now it is finding expression. But I think that's a temporary upsurge. I think it'll control itself. Law, law enforcement will take charge after some time. They'll pick up a few people, handle that. But hate crimes have been happening all the time in America. Has Europe invited trouble on itself? You know, it's opened the doors, there's been a lot of immigration. They have not opened doors, they've closed all the doors, they've built fences. Now they are. They're just not allowing the media near the fences anymore. Or media also is part of it, they don't go near the fences, they only shoot the open spaces. Their cameras don't pick up the fences. Most nations have put up barbed wire fences wherever the migrants could come and they've stopped, all right? You can't blame them either. 
because they're coming in millions. If millions of new people come with a completely different culture, culture, a religion which they will not compromise and they will not fit into your society, they will try to create their own society, local people will feel insecure. It's… see, it is… it is a multi-headed problem, it's not a simple problem. So this is why I'm saying for all these Azadi groups also, the moment you break the fabric of any nation, it doesn't matter how fragile, how ramshackle it is, the moment you break it, what comes out of it is such a thing that you cannot control it. See, if you had not bomb bombed out these nations, if you had not bombed out Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, wherever, if you had not done that, if you had negotiated and settled those problems to whatever extent, you can't fix all the problems, at least you could have contained the problems. If you had done that, these people would not be moving to Europe. Somehow they would continue to live because nobody wants to leave their place of birth and their parentage and everything just for nothing. When it becomes terrible, they want to go. But once the momentum starts, the things that I've seen in Europe, I cannot utter here, it's terrible what these migrants are doing to themselves to earn just one meal is too horrible. The women are all on the streets, all kinds of people with children and everything, they are on the streets selling themselves because there is no other way to make a living. It's… these are all people who lived reasonably well. Reasonably well means maybe not in… Uh, in the same level of economic well-being as the Western Europe, but they lived with some dignity, with some pride in their own lands. I drove from Beirut to Damascus to the Iraqi border, I just drove myself through the desert and fantastic country it was just seven years ago, you know, really nice country. Particularly this city, Aleppo city, which is an eight thousand year old city, this city was built on taxes levied on Indian traders, so you must assume what is the level of trade that was happening between India and Damascus and Jerusalem was such, just by the taxes that the Indian traders paid, they built a city, a living city, eight thousand years old, one of the most beautiful cities, if you ask me. Today when I see on the news channels Aleppo, it's… Uh, what is it? Is this a solution for anybody? So. You may have uh, whatever, people earn Nobel Peace Prizes, but this is the kind of solutions they offer to the world. There was no need to do these things, there was a way to negotiate because of the simplistic, moralistic attitude that you have, that this is a good guy, this is a bad guy. This is basic stuff, good guy, bad guy business. And millions of people, over a million are dead, over ten to fifteen million are homeless. Nobody is counting these numbers really properly. But what's happened to Aleppo when I see on the screens, I can't believe it. This is a city that I enjoyed so much just seven years ago and the people were so wonderful. I'm… I'm… I'm not quite sure, you know, you… you quickly passed through my question when I asked you about what happening in America and you glanced it through and you said that it's a… it's a temporary phenomenon. Uh, no, I, I'm I personally… Saying, I'm saying Sadhguru, nothing has changed as the news channels are trying to project. Suddenly America has changed, become a cauldron of hate. It's not true. Generally, there is a racial discrimination in the country. All of us face it somewhere or the other, especially me <laughs> I've not been shot at yet, but people have 
given me daggers <laughs> and so many things happen there. It's… we just say, okay, this is how this country is and go on. There's… America has the most beautiful aspects of life also and very extremely negative aspects also because this is that kind of a melting pot, all kinds of people. Now those people, some of those people are feeling emboldened and they think they can act. But I'm telling you, they were acting even before. How many hate crimes have happened? Recently in the last one, two years, you must have seen all these black people being shot in many places, they put it on the Facebook live and all that stuff. But this has been happening all the time. Suddenly because of the Facebook you think it's happening, no. It's been happening all the time, now the world knows. Otherwise, the people who live there, they always know this happens all the time. Just look back at the statistics. Let's say in, 19, uh, in 2016, 2015, how many Indians, how many blacks, how many Hispanics have been killed, I don't think the numbers have changed. The reporting has changed. You're blaming the media for that. I'm not blaming the media. You're not blaming <laughs> Trump. <laughs> you're not blaming Trump, but you're blaming the media for that. I, so I think… I uh, think Trump no, no, has I'm, emboldened us. I, I'm saying, yes, definitely his presence has emboldened them. But I'm saying, nobody needs to embolden them, they've been always doing it. Yeah. Maybe now they're uttering the words. They're not af afraid of uttering the words because they think at the highest office there is support. Sadhguru, now let's look at a few issues that you've raised in the last three minutes. You say that, you know, there must be a better solution, there must be no confrontation. Nonviolence is not always the answer. No. I would argue. Yes. You know, it, it's okay to say, it's, it doesn't deliver results. No. In your view, can non-violence be an answer, for example, to jihadi terrorism? Not at all. So, if not so, then what I would like you to tell this audience is, dealing with one of the greatest individual constructs of problems in the world today, which is jihadi terrorism, in your view, Sadhguru, what is the direct antidote to jihadi terrorism, an immediate and quick solution to it. Uh, what is the direct antidote? That's what I'm doing, that's my work. But quick solution, I don't have one <laughs> There's no quick solution. Individual transformation is the only solution, but that's not a quick solution, but a lasting solution. What is, the, what is the solution to it? Let me rephrase that. What is the solution? I'm saying… How do you deal with it? If you were a world leader, what? Sadhguru, which you are in your own way, but if you were a political leader facing the problem of jihadi terrorism, what would you do to take it on? See, we must understand this. Though nobody wants to spell it out, nobody wants to say it, it is written not in one, in many religious books across the world, it is written clearly, those who are not like you deserve to be killed. Let's come to the point. I know, this may bring things upon myself, but it's okay. Not in any one book, in many books it is written clearly. Those who do not believe the same things that I believe must die, they are fit to die, they are unfit to live here. This is clearly there. So because people are claiming it is the word of God, they don't have the courage to amend the book. It is time that you take sensible part of people who believe in these books 
and say, see, if you edit these ten pages, your book will become wonderful. <laughs> the boys who… the boys who carried out the Dhaka attack came from very, very elite families. Some of them spoke accented English. They simply wore black robes, called themselves ISIS, went into a cafe and shot innocent people. When a philosophy as dangerous as that, and I wouldn't use the term philosophy, when a belief as dangerous as that becomes as viral, as potent, it grows organically. ISIS then becomes a thought process, not even a terrorist organization. Then how do you deal with it? I, I need to correct that question a bit. It is not organic, it is very organized. Till you address this, you will not address the problem. It is very, very organized. So if anything that's organized, it has a source. If you have any kind of administrative strength and skills, when you see something threatens the fabric of the society, you must know where is the source for these organizations and deal with it. But we don't have the courage to deal with it because every six months we got an election, okay? Every six months or eight months, there is an election going on somewhere. And because of the <laughs> this I'll blame on you, because of twenty-four-seven channels, some election is happening in Manipur, it feels like a national election is happening in Tamil Nadu, everybody sitting and watching Manipuri elections <laughs> Because it's made to feel like there's election going on and when they're… when politicians are in election mode, you don't expect responsible action. It is expected because this is the nature of democracy, that is a time of hyperbole, but that should be only once in five years. I think we are working towards that, that's a good thing, that elections will be only once in five years and that's how it should be because it is not that they're all bad, but these are the compulsions of a democracy. When you… when you go into an election campaign, you cannot say, I'm taking this economic step, this economic step, this economic step because the crowd there doesn't understand any of these things, you have to rev up their passion about something. So in that mode, you can't fix a nation. So this is not organic, let's be very clear about this, this is super organized. It has grown everywhere in the world with a tremendous sense of organization, where there is an organization, there is always a head and if you know how to administer a nation, you must know how to handle this. One observation, Sadhguru, uh, which is an, an a comment, probably you haven't seen Oh My God, you, you need to have… you need to have a look at that because to get all the spiritual gurus in India under one platform never happens. It only happens when you scare and since you're using the word screwed up, I'll use the word when you… when you scare the shit out of them. Uh, but coming to the serious part of it, uh, you know, I, I consider you and, uh, you know, I, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, I really don't… I have a spiritual sense within me, but I don't really follow any spiritual guru. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, when, when, you know, when I actually went through internet and, and heard a few of your interviews in conversation, uh, I found in you a very logical person a person who uh, uh, is practical, a person who is scientific in his answers and therefore, you know, there was a connect. But there were two things uh, which actually broke that connect and there's a disconnect and I hope you can mend that today. Uh, which is, when you talked about and, and maybe I got it wrong so therefore, 
you know, if, if you could just kindly explain what you meant by that. Uh, that certain women uh, don't need to enter certain temples. Or maybe women in certain temples need to, know, uh, you know, need to stay out. So that's one. And the other is the recent one, where in Jalikattu, you talked about uh, fundamental rights of animals and every birds and everything. But in Jalikattu, you uh, supported uh, the, the other side of it. So why was this? And uh, since it was kept uh, political by Arnab, most part of it, and I think many of us out here were wanting to hear the spiritual side of you, uh, so I'm, I'm following it up with a, with a, with a political question. So we must understand this. There are two reasons. Those people who are propagating certain things and also there is a certain unfortunate discriminatory process. But essentially, culturally, this nation, before invasions and other things happened, this nation did not have a big discriminatory process between men and women. You look back on the ancient societies here, there was absolutely no discrimination. Most of the country was matriarchal. They obviously because this is… you must understand many things today are common between men and women, not because of liberalism, simply because of technology. Technology has leveled the ground in many ways. Your muscle doesn't mean as much as it meant a thousand years ago. When human beings were doing everything with their body, man's muscles were important. So he dominated the world in a certain way. Once technology came, your muscles mean if you have a lot of muscles, we'll give you a menial job, we're not going to make you the boss here. So because of that, things change slowly. But in the spiritual dimension of this country, there never was any discrimination. You must understand if you don't know this, as per the Hindu norms, a Hindu man cannot go to heaven without his wife. How nice is that? There are no other apsaras and other whatever, they are not waiting there. You have to go there with your wife. You decide whether you want to go to heaven or not, that's up to you <laughs> But a Hindu ma man cannot go to heaven without his wife next to him. She has to be there. So these are different ways this society addressed this. But when the invasions happened particularly, first thing that they're going for is your wife and your daughter. That's the first thing that people will take away. And it's the most disgraceful thing and the most painful thing. So they all hid them in the granaries of the time. And when continuously these raids were ravaging the society, slowly, don't step out of the house, became a norm. Because generation after generation, the raids kept on happening. So there are many historical aspects, leave that. About the temple entry, there is no such thing anywhere that a woman should not enter a temple because she is a woman. Do you understand? It is just that certain temples, they are doing certain occult work. There are certain forces there. <laughs> I have to talk about biology. One thing is mountain temples, we said women should not go. Because you must understand, those were days… this is a tiger land. When I say tiger land, today the poor tiger has to be protected as if it's a pussycat. 
those days they prowled in thousands. Going into the jungle and coming back alive is a big thing. If you don't know this, even today there is a practice that if people, tribal people walk in the jungle, though there are not so many tigers anymore, they will take some incense and walk because they don't want the wild animals to smell them. There is Samrani in the South Indian temple. You know what Samrani? What do you call it in North? Samrani only, right? Yeah, either they burn it or they smear it on their body and walk so that the wild animals, the carnivorous animals cannot smell you. It is no more relevant because there are not so many left. But at that time it was really tiger country. So the very nature of woman's biology is such that a carnivorous animal will always smell out a woman much more easily than a man. Especially at certain times of the month, it will definitely smell it, smell her out. So they said, mountain temples, she should not go. All the mountain temples, they're restricted. Now those things are gone, women are equipped in a different way than the way they were at that time and the wildlife is scant, it is very much possible to go. The other kind of temples where they were asked not to go were where they're doing occult work. When they're doing occult work, I'm telling you, whether you like it or you don't like it, maybe you are liberal, but you don't know the fundamentals of nature. The nature is such that when you do certain occult work, a woman is more susceptible to damage herself in such situation than a man. Even for a man, if there is any injury in the body, they won't let him into that place where they're doing occult because it will affect him. So, this was done with a certain care and concern, not as a discrimination. Today you're taking it up as a political activism and thinking everybody should go to everywhere, it's fine. Then the thing is you should not do that kind of work because it'll be harmful. Even today in this country, if a woman is in early stage of pregnancy, we won't allow her to come to the funerals. Do you know this? It is a very sensible thing to do. It is not discrimination, it is protection, not just for the woman, but for the child that she carries. It's very, very important. If you do not look at life the way it is, how the life forces function, how it is best for us to be, and if you just talk about social equality, social equality, then you will do silly things which will only in the end make the woman suffer. But now it's become political activism, probably those temples are not doing any occult of any great strength, so maybe it doesn't matter, that's a different matter. <coughs> but if you're talking politics, if you're talking about equality, there are only two places where you should be even concerned whether somebody is a man or a woman. What is in somebody's pants is not your business. Only in bedrooms and bathrooms you must be concerned about these things. Sadhguru, if I may, completely, totally, thousand percent disagree with you. I, I have, you know, in this country, the problem has been that a lot of people take upon themselves the responsibility of protecting women. And this is, no, this no, is let not me give like you that. my perspective, Sadhguru. You see, in this country of ours, at one point of time, it was also told that sati is tradition. So we must shall, I, shall I clear no, that? Can I, can now I, you raise something, can, no, shall no, I let, clear let that? Me complete the, okay. Let me complete the one. The second point is, there are no tigers who are going to eat women when they go to Shani Shignapur or Sabrimalai. By your own argument, there was a rationale, you say, for not letting women, a logical rationale for not letting women into temples earlier. That rationale doesn't exist today. It doesn't, that's so what I'm change, saying. So then change the rules, which have been I, created. I'm saying just that, where it comes from, 
and where when situations change, we have to change the norms accordingly, so, that's what I'm saying. So, so Sadhguru, and anyway… No, no, Sadhguru, see here, look at how unfair this is. In this country, there are women who can be divorced on WhatsApp on <laughs> triple talaq, on that's WhatsApp. A, that's another matter. No, it's, a, it's the same matter. <laughs> in this woman… in this country, you must answer, understand the sensibilities of people today. They are going to question what is injustice. Definitely. A woman is being kept out of a temple because she is told that she is impure. <laughs> By the definition of what is pure and impure, if it doesn't apply no, no. in today's context, then we need to give voice to that. All I am saying to you, Sadhguru, is another point of polite disagreement with you and we will never agree on this point. Is no, that, no, we will come, that, we'll is, come is to is the that, agreement, no, disagreement. No, no, is, that, is that things have changed? I know this personally, Sadhguru. I have some understanding of the pulse of this country. We did a campaign called the right to pray. I wish, Sadhguru, you were there with me when phone lines were opened, when people, men, women, children from all over the country called up and said, what happens in Shani Shignapur, Haji Ali or Sabri Malai is unfair. See, that is a perspective which must be understood. See, That's all that's it. Please, uh, if you… But we'd go the thing is, I know you, you, I know you are in a certain uh, profession where you only ask questions, but you must listen to what I'm saying. No, I… I Sadhguru… Sadhguru… Sadhguru, Sadhguru, let me tell you one thing. Let me, let, no, let no, no, me no, finish one, this. Just, no, let no, me no, finish. No, you no, asked no, a question, no, right? No, no, Sadhguru, let me, let me tell you one thing. Please understand that the logic is also understood by people and the right to question what is wrong is essential to my profession. Yes. The day I stop questioning what is I'm wrong… I'm not questioning that. Then I will not be true to my I'm profession. I'm not questioning that. But I'm telling you, please, because what is simple basic logic? and in how many ways life happens are two different things. Whatever we did to protect from wildlife and stuff is not relevant anymore because women are not in the same condition, they're equipped in many different ways. Going up to hill temples which be very much possible, that's not an issue at all. But where there is genuine occult, I would still not send my daughter there or anybody that I know because this even for a man, if he's in a certain condition, it'll affect him if he's not of a certain nature. But woman is much more susceptible to this. Is such a thing happening in a temple or not is a questionable thing. But this is not about protecting woman from somebody because this is the nature of our biology, we cannot ignore it, all right? Now, talking about sati, Nobody can endorse such a thing. Talking about three words will dismantle your marriage because three words may happen in moments of anger and disagreement and something and it's over, this is another thing altogether. Sati as a thing came up again when only when men were killed in battle. When men were killed in battle, when other people entered the towns, what happened to the women was worse than death. Because of that, they got into this mode, when my husband who is a soldier dies, I kill myself because what happens after that is worse than death. So that came from that and somebody exploited and stretched it, well, we stopped that reasonably, I think almost… almost totally stopped that, that's a different thing. If you think I'm speaking for not equality of women, it's… Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say anything, I don't want to defend that because my life is not about looking at someone as man and woman. As I said, only… only in a certain context of our life, 
we have to recognize the gender of a person. The rest of the time, why should we even recognize the gender of a person? A human being is a human being. Only in certain aspects of our life, somebody is a man, somebody is a woman. All the time thinking, I am a man, you are a woman is… Uh, drives to I, madness. I, I'll, I'll make this pass, but I'll just make one up. If you… if you say you have to enter heaven with your wife, I, you can enter heaven with your wife, but you aren't enter a particular temple with your wife, I don't think that's fair. No, I, no, no, I, no, 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 I, this I, I take the next question, No, you, you can't have the last the word on question, that. <laughs> you can't have the last word on that. I won't have the last word, I'll give the question there. I'm… I only mentioned the heaven business, not because I believe there is a heaven. No, no. I did not talk about the heaven because I think there is a heaven and you're going to heaven. I know you're not it's going to any such place. But <laughs> I am saying the source… the society and the culture try to control the natural urge for a man to dominate the woman with these kind of things. That's all I said. Sadhguru, you talked about self-enrichment and self-consciousness uh, and you were going to give us some tools. I think we all got distracted. We, none of us have heard about the tools that you could offer us. <laughs> See, it's like this. The nature of your existence, your experience and your perception is right now like this. You know that you're here right now because you can see, you can hear, you can smell, you can taste and you can touch. Suppose right now you just dozed off a little bit. You're still very alive and everything is going on here. But if you doze off a little bit, first thing is I will disappear for sure. If you doze some more, everybody will disappear. If you go more, even you will disappear. This is the nature of human experience simply because the five sense organs have shut down. Suddenly the world is obliterated, even you are obliterated. Or in other words, your entire experience of life right now is limited to five sense organs. These sense organs, in the very nature of things, cannot see anything the way it is. They can only see everything in comparison. You know what is light only because you know darkness. You know what is sound only because you know silence. You know this only because of that, because… See, right now if I touch this, my hand says this cup is cool. No, it is not so. It is because of the way my body temperature is, I'm thinking this is cool. If I lower my body temperature and touch this, this would be warm to me. So your entire perception is by comparison. Perception by comparison is good enough for survival process. It is not good enough for knowing the nature of life. It will help you to survive in the world. These five sense organs will help you to survive in the world, but it will not give you any sense about what this life is about. So if you have to know life the way it is, not the way it's projected to be, when I say not the way it is projected to be, see right now, let's say you're six feet tall. Now, in this society you stand like a tall man, you walk like a tall man, you feel like a tall man, you are a tall man. You went to another society where everybody is eight feet tall, suddenly you feel like a short man, stand like a short man, walk like one and feel like one and you are one, isn't it? So what you know by comparison is only good enough for survival in a given situation. 
it is not good enough instruments to know life in its essence. So if you want to know something more, you have to enhance your perception. Right now, everything that you carry in your mind as information is all these comparisons and half bits and pieces. When I say bits and pieces, right now you can see this part of my hand. That means you cannot see this part of my hand. This not just with my hand, even if you take a grain of sand, you, if you see one part, you cannot see the other part. This is the nature of human perception. <laughs> when… Uh, when this question came up, when Arunabha asked this question some time ago, when I was a child, I stared and stared trying to bend my perception around this because I saw I can see only a part of it. How to see the other part? You won't believe this. By the time I was eleven years of age, I would walk in the jungle alone by myself for three to four days till my bread lasted, alone. And I learned to see in the dark absolutely as good as the animals. And not just walking, I caught dozens of snakes in the dark. They couldn't believe that I can see as good as them, but I could pick them up because it is just a question of enhancing your perception and a human being is capable of this because in this… on this planet, we have the most evolved neurological system. But because of cerebral activity which is new, <laughs> I mean evolutionary scale, it is a new happening. Because of that, we are too enamored with our thought and emotion, we don't feel so many things. But actually, you have a better neurological system than any creature on this planet. Do you agree with me? But if you want to smell something out, you'll build a, bring a dog. If you want something else, you'll look at something else because they don't have this thought process. They're able to just be keen on how they perceive their senses. But human beings' ability to sense anything has gone down because they are completely going on with their own thought. Their own thought and emotion keeps them busy for their entire life. Their psychological reality has overshadowed their existential reality. This is the biggest problem. So when we talk about life, we are not talking about a psychological space. Today if you say life, if somebody says my life, you are supposed to think he's talking about his work. He's talking about his family, he's talking about his car, he's talking about his wealth. He's not talking about life. Life means this, what is throbbing inside and keeping this alive right now. This is life, isn't it? But when people say life, you're supposed to understand that he's not talking about life, he's actually talking about his job or wealth or money, a business or something. Because your idea of life has become purely survival. The idea of evolution or the possibility of this evolution is that a human being is capable of rising be beyond their survival process. This is the reason why survival doesn't fulfill you. For every other creature, their survival requirements are taken care of, they're just fine, they have no other issue. Eating, sleeping, reproducing, their life is complete. Till these things happen to you, you think these are big things. But once they happen to you, they don't mean anything. You want something more to happen. If that something more happens, you want something more. If that something more happens, you want something more. If you look at this, what you want is not more, what you want is all. And if you want all, you should not go by extending physical boundaries because physical can never be 
all, isn't it? You're unknowingly, you're desiring for the infinite, but you think you will get there by counting one, two, three, four, five. No, you will only become endless counting. You will only become endless counting. Now, because we are looking at everything in comparison, in many ways we have fragmented the world, even our own species between men and women, and everything and everything is divided because we are perceiving everything through sense perception, we don't have a life perception. So if you have to transcend the limitations of your senses, it is not that senses are bad, without that you wouldn't even know that you exist. Senses are fundamental, without it you cannot survive. But once you're human, survival is not good enough, something more needs to happen. For that something more, some striving is needed, you must look at this properly. Anything in your life which is about survival has come to you just naturally. See, suppose you got lost in a jungle as an infant, no contact with any human society. Something edible came in front of you, would you first try your ears, then your nostrils, then your eyes and accidentally find your mouth? No. Anything concerned with survival, you just know, isn't it? But you wouldn't know how to read, how to write, language, this, that, many other things you would not know because anything beyond survival will not come to you unless you strive for it. So, to turn inward, that means why I'm saying turn inward is because these sense organs are essentially outward bound. But the experience of your life is happening from within you. Do you see me? Hello, all of you? Do you see me? Even if you're not listening, it's okay, but do you see me? <laughs> Can you use one hand and point out where I am? You got it all wrong, you know, I'm a mystic <laughs> No, this light is falling upon me, reflecting, going through your lenses, inverted image in the retina, you know the entire story. So where do you see me? You see me within yourself. Where do you hear me? You hear me within yourself. Where have you seen the whole world? Within yourself. Everything that ever happened to you, light and darkness happens within you, pain and pleasure happens within you, Joy and misery happens within you, agony and ecstasy happens within you. Just about anything that ever happened to you, happened only within you. You have never experienced anything outside of you. Right now, if somebody touches your hand, you think you're experiencing their hand. No, you're only experiencing the sensations in your hand, isn't it? Now, your entire experience is within, when it is so, what happens within you, at least what happens within you, must happen the way you want it, isn't it? If you happen just the way you want it, would you keep yourself in the highest level of pleasantness or unpleasantness? Pleasantness. The choice for yourself is definitely pleasantness. What you want for your neighbor may be debatable, but what you want for yourself is very, very clear. But that one thing is not happening. Why I'm talking about pleasantness is, there is substantial medical and scientific evidence today that if you remain pleasant without a moment of anger, anxiety, irritation, agitation, nothing, for twenty-four hours if you remain like this, they are saying your ability to use your intelligence can go up by hundred percent in twenty-four hours' time. So. Pleasantness or joy or bliss is not a goal by itself, it is a fundamental necessity. 
in the sense, only if your experience of life is pleasant and if there is no fear of suffering, will you walk full stride. Otherwise, fear of suffering will always cripple you in so many ways. But today it's become like this, people, well, even spiritual leaders are going about talking, saying that peace of mind is the ultimate goal of life. Such people will only rest in peace <laughs> I <laughs> I was to speak at Tel Aviv and I'm flying out of Atlanta in the United States and I'm to land there at eleven in the morning and speak at six-thirty in the evening. I end up landing there because of some flight delays at six in the evening. So I'm quickly changing in the airport because in this thirty-five years I have not been late to a single event or appointment. I've managed this always <clears throat> So I'm rushing and I'm famished. I'm super hungry because I'm flying an American airline, there's nothing edible on that plane. <laughs> but I don't have a moment to grab something, so I just went straight. And to my amazement, I found I'm speaking at a fine restaurant. That doesn't happen at all to me <laughs> I thought, this is it. When I'm so hungry, this is the place to go. And people were already coming in, some people greeting me and one man comes and says, Shalom. I ask him, what does it mean? He says, this is the highest way of greeting. I said, well, that's your opinion. What does it mean? He said, no, no, this is really the highest way of greeting. All right, but what does the word mean? I said, it means peace. Then I say, why is peace the highest way of greeting unless you're born in Middle East? <laughs> you come in South India, in the morning you come and say, peace. I'll say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm saying if you deprive yourself of something for long enough, suddenly, slowly it'll rise to heaven. If you've not eaten for five days, let you say… let us say your favorite god appeared, what will you ask? Food? Food will raise to heaven. Everything that you don't have will raise to heaven. Being peaceful, it's not the ultimate goal of life. It is the most fundamental requirement. Today, if you want to enjoy your dinner, if not ecstatic, at least you must be peaceful, isn't it? If you want to take a walk on the street and enjoy it, you must at least be peaceful. If you want to live with this handful of people in your family, you must at least be peaceful if not ecstatic, isn't it? If you want to enjoy the few things that you do in your life, the most fundamental thing, basic requirement is at least you're peaceful. But today people are saying it is the ultimate goal of life, peace of mind. That's never going to happen because they have not understood the simplest aspects of life. For example, your mind. Can we? The simplest aspect, it's like this. Because people are falling out of scriptures, this is the biggest problem. I was about to tell a joke, but Aruna was serious <laughs> This happened in Tennessee. You know, we… our center in the United States is in Tennessee. It's a hardcore religious place. People said, Sadhguru, you'll get killed in no time. But we are flourishing in Tennessee, doing very well, because they can't figure out who I am. <laughs> I go out to this… into this little town, and I'm new there, and I'm smiling at everybody and greeting people on the street, small little town. One big man, over six feet tall, this wide, comes and stands just six inches away from me. 
looks down on me like this and said, God loves us. I look at but him and say, the way you are, only God can love you <laughs> He has to love the mistakes he has made <laughs> Before he realized, he takes time to get things, by then I'm gone of course. So in Tennessee, every family has a huge Bible, not small, big ones, this big, leather bound. The bigger the family, the richer the family, the bigger the size of the Bible. Almost every home has ten commandments carved on the stone. Most of it goes from South India, these carvings. <laughs> so it's good business, I watch this and say, okay, it's good for our economy, commandments or no commandments <laughs> So. This little boy, eight-year-old boy went to school in… on East Coast and came back home on the vacation. So he was just flipping through this big book and a dry leaf fell out. The boy started screaming, Mama, Mama, see what I have found. His mother said, what have you found, my son? He said, just come and see what I have found. So the mother came running to see what. Then he pointed at the leaf and said, Adam's underwear <laughs> So lot of people, the reason why something so simple and life-oriented has become complicated is because people are falling out of scriptures. What is it that makes you think, thousand, two thousand, five thousand years ago, people were far more intelligent than you and me? Why is it so? Is it not such a retrograde step that you think people thousand, two thousand, five thousand years ago were much smarter than you and me? Is it so? Is it in line with the evolutionary process, I'm asking? No. But this is the thing we want to change. Today, with everything around us, we handle it scientifically using various technologies. It is equally important that you handle your inner nature, scientifically, in a logically correct manner and with tools. Now your thing is, give me the tools. These are subjective in nature. If it was a screwdriver, I would have brought, come with a bag full and given it to you. This is subjective. What is subjective means it is something within. Right now, everything of you is outward, that is, all your five senses are outward bound, isn't it? You cannot turn them inward, you can't roll your eyeballs inward and scan yourself. You can hear this, so much activity here, you cannot hear this. An ant crawls upon this hand, you can feel it, so much blood flowing, you cannot feel it. In the very nature of things, your sense organs are outward bound. If you want genuine tools of transformation, I would say, if you dedicate twenty-eight to thirty hours of focused time, okay? twenty-eight to thirty hours of focused time, we will give you tools to experience or touch a dimension which is inward. Inward is not of thought, inward is not contemplation. What you call as mind and body is very outward because body is something that you accumulated over a period of time from outside, isn't it? The soil that you walk upon is what is sitting here is the body. If you get it now from me, your life will transform, otherwise one day you will get it from the maggots. Yes 
What you call as my mind is also an accumulation of impressions that we have taken in. This is accumulation of food, this is accumulation of impressions. But between these two heaps of impressions and food, somewhere there is something else which is… which makes all this happen. If that comes into your living experience, then you will not need any guidance from anybody. To get you there, I am asking not twelve years of sadhana, I am asking thirty hours of focused time. You must do that much to yourself. You deserve that <laughs> Thank you. Sadhguru, my question to you. You know, when we change… think of, you know, change… bringing reforms to our religion, and uh, we all are, you know, are taught that in Vedas it's written that uh, soul has no gender. And so, you know, we saw this sati pratha being abolished and we saw widow re remarriage also. So why don't you all, as Arna was saying, think about, you know, the entry of uh, women in temples? The fundamentally in this society, there is no such thing as discrimination. There are more Devi temples in the country than anything else. Every village has it. But certain temples have taken this position, mainly hill temples. This, as I said, because of a certain reason in the past, it has to change now, no question about that. But if there are occult temples, even if they allow you, I please beg the woman, please don't go there. By law, if you're allowed, by norm if you're allowed, still you should not go there, if you have any sense. So my question is to both uh, Sadhguruji as well as Arnab. Uh, what's your view on uh, our leader, Prime Minister? And uh, I would like to ask both of you, uh, Sadhguruji, if you are the Prime Minister tomorrow, what is one change which you would like to bring in our country? Well, uh, I am not planning to get into the parliament either <laughs> About my opinion about a leader, see I'm not a member of any political party, nor am I a fan of any political leader. Nor am I a fan of any political leader, but I have to say this, I'm politically conscious maybe for the last nearly fifty years now. I've been reading newspapers for fifty years, so in this I find now it looks like we have the most determined leadership ever. Are they right, are they wrong? You, it's not for me to take a call whether they're right or wrong. At least India is topmost on their mind. This is very heartening for me. And because I have… I have been in certain situations with variety of political leaders in the past, it, it always scared me that for twenty-four hours if you are with them, they don't have one single thought on their mind today what they can do for this country sitting in such a responsible position, which… which kind of, you know, really shook me. How is it somebody that is heading a nation with 
such a huge population and a million problems, doesn't think today, what can be done? At least today you have a leadership where nation is on the topmost in their mind. But do we have to agree with everything that they do? Not necessarily. Can we disagree with them? One hundred percent, we can if what is being done is not right for the country. Arnab spoke about this pride today morning also where I was, I was telling them, nation is an idea. Without bringing pride and emotion towards that, you are not going to make it happen. This is a crime we've committed. In 1947, when there was a euphoria of emotion and thing for the nation, people are willing to die for it, that was the time to enshrine the nation in everybody's hearts. We should not… we did not do that. We had fanciful ideas and we kind of… we… we did not know what to do probably. In retrospect, in the… in… Uh, in post-mortem we can say many things, we don't know what was their mindset and what was happening, whatever. They lost control over that, they lost that opportunity. Whenever there is strife in a nation, that is the time when you can once again reshape a country. When people are comfortable, unfortunately, most people will not be conscious. We have to build a humanity which will be in utmost comfort and still conscious. That is when we re really build a good nation. But still we are in a place where unless we are in a strife, we are not conscious of the larger well-being of what needs to happen. So, in many ways, Today, even if there is no real strife on the street, there is strife. Arunap is going to be active in two months. Uh, small issues <laughs> when I say small, I am not saying small in significance, I am saying small in size. See, a child falls into a tube well, it is small in size, but not small in significance. A life is a life, okay? If it is my life, it's significant. So, it is the same way it's significant for everybody's life. It may be small in size, but it is significant for what it is. So like this, there are a thousand issues in the country and for the first time we have mediums through which all these issues can enter everybody's heads and everybody can think about it. So there is strife, there is going to be strife in this country. When I say strife, don't think something has to happen on the street, no. It needs to happen, strife needs to happen in people's hearts and minds. So that is anyway going to happen. When this is happening, this is the time to build that sense of pride. But pride should not become prejudice. It's very important to build that pride in who we are and not developing prejudice against those who we think are not part of us. To… this is a… a very subtle process which needs to be done. Can… is there some ideal way of doing it? No, we will have to mess around with it. It is… that's the only way it will happen, but we are… a new generation is coming, young people, whose thought process, whose way of looking at life has changed in many ways. Today, for the first time in the history of humanity, more human beings are able to think for themselves than ever before. Whether they're thinking right or wrong is not the debate, but they're thinking. 
At one time, a scripture would think for you, a guru would think for you, an elder would think for you, one man in the village would think for you. Today everybody is beginning to think for themselves. Once this happens, people will become in such a way, unless something is logically correct, they cannot swallow it. If you make them swallow it, they cannot digest it, this will happen. Right now, you are still a generation who is still willing to acknowledge an authority and try to digest something which is not logically correct. But your children will be such, even if God comes and speaks, if it doesn't make sense to him, them, they will reject it. So well said. We are… we are just on the verge of that. So this is a time, this is a good time because now we are moving to a place where only truth can be the authority. Authority cannot be the truth anymore. Doesn't matter where the authority is coming from. This evolution is anyway going to happen. In the next, in my estimate, I'm saying somewhere between next twenty to forty years' time, all the heavens will collapse. When I say heavens will collapse, do you know what's in heaven? You must know. In, in Hindu heaven, the food is very good. <laughs> if you are a foodie, that's where you must go. Nala himself cooks for you, the best chef. In another place, there are those white-gowned ladies who float around, legless ladies who f float around in the clouds. If you like that kind of ambience, you go there. In another place, you'll encounter virgin problems. If you like that, you can go there. But what do you have to do to get there? This happened in Alabama. You heard of Alabama? It's a special state in America. <laughs> In a Sunday school, a Sunday school teacher was going off full on, full fire. And in his rhetoric, he asked, what do you have to do to go to heaven? Little Mary, who was sitting in the front row, said, if I scrub the church floor every Sunday, I will go to heaven. He said, absolutely. Another little girl stood up and said, if I share fifty percent of my pocket money with a less privileged friend, I will go to heaven. Correct. Another little boy said, if I help other people, I will go to heaven. Correct. Little Tommy in the back bench stood up and said, you gotta die first <laughs> That's a qualification, you got to die first. When you die, depending upon what culture you are, we will either burn you, bury you or cut you and throw you to the birds. One thing is, if you have not done anything eco-friendly, I am assuring you, at least when you die, we will do something eco-friendly about you. We'll put you back to earth, it's a very good thing to do. If you take this body and go away somewhere, this is the worst thing to do because you're taking away the topsoil. So. We… you will leave your body here and go to heaven. You went to heaven without a body, what are you going to do with good food and virgins? This is what I want to know <laughs> when you don't have a body. So I am saying heavens will collapse. Once people start asking logical questions, heavens will collapse. When heavens collapse, we have managed humanity for a long time, telling them, doesn't matter your suffering here. God is looking at everything you're suffering, one day he will reward you up there. With this we have been managing humanity, so this will not work. When this doesn't work, what will people do?
one big thing that will happen is, we will move towards chemicals. To be peaceful, we already need chemicals. To be joyful, we need chemicals. To be healthful, we need chemicals. Seventy percent of the United States population is on prescription medication. The other thirty percent, of course, buying it off the back streets. Just… just see, in the last twenty-five years, how many more people are consuming alcohol? How many more people are consuming drugs on this planet? It's gone up ten thousand percent. This is simply because in their minds heaven is collapsing. I must under… you must understand this, that somewhere else it will be good is going away. They want to have it good here. Unless you teach them, unless you teach them how to simply sit here and be blissed out about your existence itself, the very life within you is an ecstatic process. If you don't teach them this, ninety percent will move towards drugs and alcohol in a huge way in the next twenty-five to thirty years. This is not a moral issue for me, I have no moral judgment on that. It is just that as a generation of people, we must understand, we hold this space on the planet just for a brief period of time. There are two fundamental responsibilities. One is, we must leave the world a little better than the way it was given to us by the previous generation. This we cannot do. No matter… if we do all the right things from today, it will take another hundred and fifty to two hundred years to turn back the damage we have already caused. So no way we can leave the world better than the way it was when we came in. So in that responsibility we can't fulfill, we can start the process now, that's all. The next important responsibility we have as a generation is, the next generation that we produce must be at least one notch better than us. But if ninety percent of humanity is on some kind of chemicals, believe me, genetically we will produce a generation which is less than us. This is a crime against humanity. So one important aspect that every nation has to take care of, including ours, is that we must teach people how to know well-being within themselves. Unfortunately, right now, we think if you give money or food or medicine, it is service. If I teach you how to live joyfully, it is not service. We have still… See, in this country, the most important thing in the ancient India was, you know how to be within you. This was the most respected thing because we know what will come out of this. When you have no concerns of fear, when you have no fear of suffering, that is when you will walk your life full stride. That is when great human beings are produced. If we want to produce a great nation, nation, society, these are just words, there are only individual human beings. Only if we produce great human beings will there be a great society and a great nation and a great world. Sadhguru, I'd have to thank you at this point. line between imagination and perception. There were times when one could actually pick up a lot of information about things around us, like the energy. And sometimes it was like 
is it my fear or is it everybody else's fear, the, the collective consciousness? What validates that within me? That is it me? Is it imagination? Is it perception? Uh, see, there are five dimensions of receptivity in the human being or five major points of receptivity in the human brain itself. These five dimensions are referred to as centers of sleep, centers of imagination, centers of memory, centers of right perception, centers of perversion. Everything that comes to you, how you perceive it depends on through which center you took it in. You will see if you have two children at home, same genetics, same food, probably went to the same school, one goes like this, another goes like this. You can't figure, how did these two people come from the same father and mother <laughs> Because it is the way they perceive it, from where they receive it. Same things, if you receive from different dimensions, it becomes different things within you. This is the reason why uh, <laughs> this, this may look like uh, a little thing, but I'm telling you, this is the reason why forever they've been stressing on a live guru because when you walk a terrain that you're not familiar with, it's best to have a guide who's walked the terrain. See, I every… every year I trek in Tibet and Nepal. This Sherpa who walks with me, he's illiterate. He… he doesn't know anything, spirituality, nothing. But we're going in the mountains, there are two pathways. He just says, hmm, I just go behind him. If I think I'm much smarter than him and I say, no, like this I will go, Maybe that's my last day, you understand? In the mountains, he is the boss. He knows the terrain, he's lived there, he's grown up there, he has a certain sense. With all my education, I have a sense of direction, I'm an aviator, I have a certain sense of direction, I know the mathematics, I know the geometry of it, everything. But still, when I'm in the mountains, if he says, hmm, I go this way. He doesn't even care to tell me, Sadhguru, come this way. He just says, hmm, <laughs> I just follow him. It's sensible to do that. When you're walking in unfamiliar terrain, that's the best thing to do. Thank you. <laughs> I... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>